urgency. I actually don't know if this is something that's known by that term. I kind of just invented it just now. But you're familiar with this. It's the notion that there's a deadline coming. You know, for instance, uh, we need to, to fund the federal government before we run out of money and have to shut it down. Or the, the legislative session is coming to an end and we've got to hurry up and get our bills together and get them signed by the governor. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a special session that's going to have to be negotiated, right? Yeah, and it's it's always kind of like last minute shopping before Christmas, where people act as though they had no idea December twenty fifth was coming, right? Like, I, what Christmas is on the twenty fifth this year? Nobody told me. What am I going to do? I've only got a couple of days left, right? <laughs> uh, look, it's it's your lack of planning. You knew, just like everyone else knew, that the deadline was coming, and you're the one who has created this urgency that did not have to exist by not choosing to act accordingly. You know, I point to these different examples as illustrations for us to understand what's happening right now with the Brett Kavanaugh situation and this hearing that may or may not be taking place on Monday, whereby his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford may or may not show up to answer questions from senators about the allegations that she has leveled first anonymously and now you know coming out and putting her name on them regarding supposed uh, sexually inappropriate conduct that took place 30 years ago. This stands as kind of a consummate example, or at least a, a highly consequential example of manufactured urgency whereby you know we're supposed to believe you know that in the last 48 hours this situation 48 you know however many hours 36 this situation appeared out of nowhere and needs to be dealt with and we absolutely and we've only got until Monday to figure it out and if we can't figure it out well then we just have to push back the confirmation we have to hold off on the vote we need to wait until after the midterm election uh, by God it's just urgent, 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 urgent. It's entirely manufactured. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. Our channel there will pop up for you. You can contribute this evening, 651-989-5855. Our lines are always open for you. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. So a ray of hope, some good news that has emerged in this drama, this kabuki theater. It looks as though Republicans may, and I stress the word may, be standing firm against this storm that's been brought against them in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. From Fox News, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley on Tuesday raised the possibility that next week's high-stakes open hearing to examine the sexual assault allegation against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh could be canceled if the accuser doesn't accept the committee's invitation. 
Grassley from Iowa scheduled a hearing for Monday for Kavanaugh and accuser Christine Blasey Ford to answer questions from senators about the allegation. But Grassley said during a Tuesday radio interview that his office has reached out several times to Ford and her attorneys to discuss her allegation, but has heard nothing back. We have reached out to her for the last 36 hours, three or four times by email, and we have not heard from them. And it kind of raises the question, do they want to come to the public hearing or not, Grassley said. Asked whether there would be a hearing if Ford did not agree to appear, Grassley suggested he couldn't see a reason to hold one. What would be the purpose of a hearing if Dr. Ford doesn't want to respond, Grassley said. Exactly. Exactly. The the whole reason for calling the hearing was to address these allegations, and if the person making them isn't going to show up to clarify or answer questions as to what the the situation is, provide any sort of testimony or evidence, then what is the point of having these hearings? So this is potentially good news, assuming that it actually pans out and that Grassley and his cohort stick to their guns and don't move forward with a hearing in the absence of cooperation and testimony from Christine Ford. Now, of course, the left is not having this. They're extraordinarily unhappy. They want to see the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh withdrawn. They want to go back to the drawing board. And none other than Michael Moore was making this case on CNN's Chris Como show on Tuesday. We have a summary here offered by the Huffington Post. Michael Moore wants Judge Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination withdrawn, and he doesn't want to see a replacement just yet. <laughs> Imagine that. This is, this is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Michael Moore doesn't want the Supreme Court nominee from Donald Trump to be confirmed, and he doesn't want to see a replacement nominee before the midterm election. I'm, I stand in awe. I, I didn't see that coming. The documentary filmmaker speaking with CNN's Chris Como on Tuesday said Congress should refuse any Supreme Court nomination made by President Donald Trump until after special counsel Robert Mueller completes his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. So he's taking this even further, right? Like the the more mainstream lefty nutsos are suggesting that we can't move forward with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh until there's been some sort of unspecified, thorough criminal investigation into these vague 30-year-old allegations that were brought forward in the past couple of days, right? That's, that's the mainstream position. Michael Moore is taking it even further, saying we can't have a new nominee to the Supreme Court until the special counsel has completed its work. Which it you know just so you know could be never it could be whenever Donald Trump is no longer the president come twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty four because there's there is no limiting fact it's not like there's a deadline on the special counsel or there's some sort of finish line by wh- at which point we'll know definitively okay he's done like it's that's the problem with special counsels and special special prosecutors is that they often frequently historically have major mission creep and just keep at it and keep digging and digging and digging and digging and digging until they've achieved their goal, which is to secure some sort of massive scalp. And in this case, the scalp they're going after is Donald Trump. 
And so this is basically Michael Moore saying in so many words that the presidency of Donald Trump should just be hobbled permanently because there's a special counsel out there that exists for reasons. Continuing, he said, this this is the actual quote. He said, our president is under a criminal investigation, possibly for treason or treasonous activities with his compatriots. That person, Trump, should not be allowed to make an appointment to the Supreme Court. That's what he said. Now, this is factually incorrect. The president of the United States is not under criminal investigation. There has been no criminal investigation opened against President Donald Trump. President Donald Trump has not been named as a criminal suspect by the special counsel or by any other prosecuting authority undergoing an open case. And so this is a factually incorrect statement. But even if it were true, even if Michael Moore was correct here and the president was under a criminal investigation, that would still be entirely irrelevant. Because as it turns out, being charged with something is not the same thing as being convicted of it, number one. And number two... It's an open question as to what the consequences would even be for the president of the United States to be implicated criminally and whether or not charges could even be filed, whether or not there could even be a criminal prosecution while he sets as president of the United States. The process that does exist for his removal for dealing with high crimes and misdemeanors is impeachment. And the thing about impeachment is it doesn't happen until it happens. And so the idea that the president needs to sit on his hands and not make nominations to federal courts, not make nominations to the Supreme Court, basically not be the president unless or until his political opponents decide that they're done investigating him is pretty absurd on its face. But I wouldn't expect anything different from Michael Moore. Continuing at the Huffington Post. Moore noted that Republicans said President Barack Obama shouldn't be allowed to make a Supreme Court appointment in his final year, and that instead the people should decide with their presidential vote. Moore went on to say, I say let the people decide. And you cannot have a man under this kind of potential indictment, investigation, or even impeachment be allowed to make a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. Let's figure out what the crimes are of Donald J. Trump, he concluded. And if there are crimes, let's be done with that. So in other words, let's presume that he's guilty. Let's presume that he's guilty and act accordingly. And let's also presume that he's going to be impeached and deny him his capacity to act in his elected role as president of the United States. That's the decision of Michael Moore. Now, what I find particularly interesting is this argument, and you've seen it raised frequently by Democrats over the past couple of years, these first couple of years of Donald Trump's administration, wherein they make this comparison between Barack Obama and Donald Trump and both of their respective nominations to the Supreme Court. Of course, you you recall that Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court and the Senate, which was controlled by the Republicans, did not hold any hearings, did not consider him, did not take a vote and waited until the election. Of course, Donald Trump won the election. And here we are. We all know what happened after that. And so sore about that. And I understand. I understand why they're sore. I understand that they feel gypped by that process. Democrats are now saying, well, now we just get to do whatever. Now we can we can throw a wrench in the gears with the nomination process and the confirmation process under Donald Trump because Republicans did it under Barack Obama. There's one key point 
that they're leaving out of their analysis. And that is this. There is precisely no difference in the process between these two presidents, between both Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Donald Trump made his nominations, first Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh, Donald Trump made his nominations to the Supreme Court. So did Barack Obama. That is their presidential power. As president of the United States, each of these men, Obama and Trump, get to make a nomination to the Supreme Court. Neither one of them was denied the capacity to make that nomination. From that point going forward, the confirmation process lands in the Senate. And that's where it went in both cases. It went from the White House as a nomination to the Senate for confirmation. Now, in both cases, under both Barack Obama and Donald Trump, the Senate was controlled by Republicans, by a Republican majority. And look, dims the apples, right? Like, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. The, you're you're going to make this case that we need to let the people decide. Well, the people did decide. They decided in both cases. They elected Barack Obama. Then they turned around and they elected Donald Trump. And they also elected a Republican majority to the U.S. Senate. And this is what all that looks like. This is the end result of that electoral process. Demanding that Republicans postpone the confirmation until after this midterm election is basically demanding that they cancel out the outcomes of the previous elections. And no, lefties, you can't argue that it was canceling out the election of Barack Obama for the Republican majority in the Senate to refuse to hold hearings or confirm Merrick Garland because the Senate was elected, right? They elected Barack Obama. They also elected the Republican majority in the Senate. And this is how that interaction works. You don't have to like it. You can him and haw. You can complain. You can gnash your teeth. You can rend your robes. But them's the breaks. And that's how the process works. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. It's always refreshing to see a newspaper editorial board make a reasoned argument on an issue of public importance. It's so rare nowadays, but we got one here from the Wall Street Journal that uh, kind of has the, the last word on this whole Kavanaugh situation. I'm actually quite refreshed after reading this, and I'm going to share it with you here momentarily. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. The woman accusing Brett Kavanaugh of a drunken assault when both were teenagers has now come forward publicly, and on Monday it caused Republicans to delay a confirmation vote and schedule another public hearing. This, again, an editorial from the Wall Street Journal. Yet there is no way to confirm her story after 36 years, and to let it stop Mr. Kavanaugh's confirmation would ratify what has all the earmarks of a calculated political ambush. This is not to say Christine Blasey Ford isn't sincere in what she remembers. And then they go on to recount uh, the, the details of her accusations, such as they are, uh, including the fact that there were three people present, uh, allegedly Kavanaugh, allegedly herself, and, and this gentleman, Mark Judge, who has come out and denied the account as presented by Ford. And then they continue at the Wall Street Journal, this is simply too distant and uncorroborated a story to warrant a new hearing or to delay a vote. 
We've heard from all three principals, and there are no other witnesses to call. Democrats will use Monday's hearing as a political spectacle to coax Mr. Kavanaugh into looking defensive or angry and to portray Republicans as anti-women. Odds are it will be a circus. The timing and details of how Ms. Ford came forward and how her name was coaxed into public view should also raise red flags about the partisan motives at play. The Post says Ms. Ford contacted the paper via a tip line in July but wanted to remain anonymous. She then brought her story to a Democratic official while still hoping to stay anonymous. Yet, she also then retained a lawyer, Deborah Katz, who has a history of Democratic activism and spoke in public defense of Bill Clinton against the accusations by Paula Jones. Ms. Katz urged Ms. Ford to take a polygraph test. The Post says she passed the polygraph, though a polygraph merely shows that she believes the story she's telling. The more relevant question is, why to go Why go to such lengths if Ms. Ford really wanted her name to stay a secret? Even this weekend, she could have chosen to remain anonymous. These are the actions of someone who was prepared to go public from the beginning if she had to. The role of Senator Dianne Feinstein is also highly irregular and transparently political. The ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee knew about Ms. Ford's accusations in late July or early August, yet kept quiet. And again, I go back, you know, breaking out from the Wall Street Journal here, I go back to this concept of manufactured urgency. This is what it looks like. When you know something, in the case of Ford, she knew about this for 30 years. My entire lifetime, she knew about this. Okay? The, the entire time I've been alive, it's been in her head. Longer She's been than aware I've been alive. Of it, right? Okay? So, so there's that. There's the manufactured urgency on that end. And then from Senator Dianne Feinstein, she knew about these accusations back in July, not 48 hours ago, not last week, not earlier this month, back in July. And so to to this past weekend, pretend as though all of this has come up and simply must be investigated now before we can move forward with the confirmation. Well, as the uh, Wall Street Journal puts it, if she took it seriously, that being Feinstein, she had multiple opportunities to ask Judge Kavanaugh or have committee staff interview the principals, but in that event, the details would have been vetted and senators would have had time to assess their credibility. The focus being they would have had time. And when you're trying to manufacture urgency, the last thing you want people to have, particularly your political opponents, is time. Continuing at the Wall Street Journal, instead, Ms. Feinstein waited until the day before committee markup on the nomination to release a statement that she had information about the accusation and had sent it to the FBI. Her statement was a political stunt. She was seeking to insulate herself from liberal charges that she sat on the letter, or, and this seems increasingly likely given the course of events, Senator Feinstein was holding the story to spring at the last minute in the hope that events would play out as they have. Surely she knew that once word of the accusation was public, the press would pursue the story and Ms. Ford would be identified by name one way or the other. Democrats waited until Ms. Ford went public to make public statements, but clearly some were feeding the names of Ms. Ford and her lawyer to the press, and now they are piling on what they hope will be an election eve Me Too conflagration. Senator and Judiciary Committee uh, Chairman Chuck, uh, Chuck Grassley must postpone the vote until, at the very minimum, these serious and credible allegations are thoroughly vetted, declared Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Sunday. For too long, when women have made serious allegations of abuse, they have been ignored. That cannot happen in this case. That That's the position from Chuck Schumer. 
The Wall Street Journal responds, his obvious political goal is to delay the confirmation vote past the election, fan the Me Too public furies until then, and hope that at least two GOP senators wilt under political pressure. If Republican Senators Jeff Flake, who we'll get into here shortly, and Bob Corker think a hearing will satisfy Mr. Schumer, they are right to retire from politics. GOP senators should understand that the political cost of defeating Mr. Kavanaugh will likely include the loss of the Senate. Democrats are already motivated to vote against Donald Trump, and if Republicans panic now, their own voters will rightly be furious. They would be letting Democrats get away with the same dirty trick they tried and failed to pull off against Clarence Thomas. That again from the Wall Street Journal, and they are absolutely right on all counts. It is it is entirely absurd. I mean, going back to, to Chuck Schumer's statement, he said that Senator Grassley must postpone the vote until, at a very minimum, these serious, incredible allegations are thoroughly investigated. Well, I'll tell you what. I, you got an odd definition of both serious and credible. Like, I'll grant you that the content of the accusation is serious, but it's it's not something that Christine Ford herself has taken particularly seriously. Again, she's known about it for my entire lifetime and just brought it up publicly. So she hasn't been taking it very seriously, which immediately questions the credibility of the allegation. So the idea that we have to stop the presses and put a hold on the confirmation process until some undetermined investigation by I don't know who, 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 how, this is a question that needs to be answered. Who even investigates this? Who's supposed to investigate it? And on what basis? No charges have been pursued. So uh, on what basis do you even start an investigation and in what agency? Who's going to do the investigating? And the answer is they don't know and they don't care because it's not about the actual process. They don't actually want to have a real investigation, a credible, serious investigation. They just want to put on a kabuki theater performance. And it's it's extraordinarily transparent. And the appropriate reaction to this is to call out for exactly what it is, condemn the Democrats, you know, leave Ford alone. Don't go after her but condemn Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer and all the Democrats who are obviously in a premeditated fashion conjuring this controversy as a desperate gambit to try to prevent the elected president from securing his nomination to the Supreme Court and then call a vote. Now, the problem with that is there is no guarantee that the votes are there even in spite of the fact that there's a Republican majority right now. And we'll get into that when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. A constitutional state with an independent judiciary cannot long continue if it institutionalizes the idea that an accuser can raise charges of 36 years past without current knowledge when or where the alleged crime took place, without consistent accounts of how many males were allegedly involved, without any witnesses that might contradict the denials of the accused, and without either physical evidence or any proof of a pattern of subsequent such violent behavior from Kavanaugh. No district attorney 
would consider pursuing such charges because to do so would mean that we no longer live in a lawful society but have so politicized the legal system that anyone at any time can prompt criminal investigations without any evidence other than one's incomplete or indeed faulty memory of something that happened 36 years prior. That from National Review regarding the current situation we find ourselves in with the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, the nominee of President Donald Trump. They also note that the likely justification of the Republican majority agreeing to a hearing, a rehearing of the Kavanaugh nomination was political, not legal. Senate Republicans apparently worried that in party potential, no voters on Kavanaugh, such as Senators Corker, Flake, or Collins, might become emboldened by an outright refusal to hear Professor Ford's narratives or that independent women voters would be alienated by silencing the accuser. And so, in other words, the problem with the reason, one of the reasons why they've been treading so lightly over the past few days and haven't put up a stronger front is because their front ain't that strong. They, they, in fact, they need every senator to walk in lockstep on the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, and that is not guaranteed. We have some questionable votes, Corker, Flake, and Collins. And so part of the reason why Monday is even in question is in consideration of them. And there's some reaction from John Hinderocker over at Powerline specifically to comments made by Jeff Flake that I think are worth taking a look at. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us, throw in your two cents, 651-989-5855. Brad Omeland takes those calls and produces the show. Traitor is normally considered a harsh word, but it is the only printable thing that John Hinderocker uh, has called Republican Senator Jeff Flake since he announced a few hours ago that he is not comfortable voting yes on Judge Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. And, uh, John Hinderocker is writing this over at Powerline. Flake's concern is the ridiculously stale allegation by Democratic professor Christine Ford that Kavanaugh groped her and tried to kiss her at a party when they were both high school students more than 30 years ago. You might reasonably think this is a joke. Unfortunately, not. Kavanaugh unequivocally denies Ford's allegation, and the only witness to the event, per Ford, Mark Judge, says it's absolutely nuts. I never saw Brett act that way. I think Ms. Ford is pretty obviously lying. Don't get me started on the friendly lie detector test that the Washington Post says she passed or on the most charitable explanation, possibly, that Brett Kavanaugh confused with with someone else or that she has Brett Kavanaugh confused with someone else. In any event, the idea that a 30- or 40-year-old story of this sort, he tried to kiss me, he lay on top of me, that has never been heard before, can derail the nomination of a man who, by all accounts, including those of political adversaries, is one of the most sterling possible characters, is ridiculous. Despite the feebleness of Ford's complaint, it is easy to understand why the Democrats are clinging to it like a life raft. But what could possibly prompt Jeff Flake, who ran for office and was elected as a Republican, to join in their attempt to block one of the most superbly qualified jurists ever appointed to the Supreme Court? There is only one answer. His insane hatred for President Trump. Flake is a never-Trumper. Like a number of others for whom... I, and again, this is John Hinderocker writing at Powerline, 
once had considerable respect, Flake has elevated his hatred for our president over every principle of politics and public policy. He would rather subvert his own allegedly conservative principles than allow President Trump to exercise his constitutional power as president. Words can hardly express how contemptible this is. Flake is a member of the Judiciary Committee, so Kavanaugh's appointment cannot proceed to the Senate floor without his vote. It goes without saying that there is no Democrat on the committee who will follow his or her conscience rather than the Schumer party line. Flake has resigned from the Senate effective the end of his term, so this could be his parting shot against the party and the principles he claimed to represent. He is not yet a party switcher like Jim Jeffords. He was briefly celebrated, uh, Jeffords was, but he might as well be. Rarely have I witnessed anything so disgusting in the world of politics. And this again, John Hinderacker writing a power line. And so, you know, obviously, Mr. Hinderacker is taking a pretty, a pretty hard stance against Jeff Flake for uh, saying that he has, he's not a solid yes vote on Brett Kavanaugh. Now, I'm willing to give Flake a little bit more benefit of doubt, but I remain like if. If I was confronted with Flake or if I had the opportunity to question Flake, I would want to know why he's a shaky yes vote, why he's not certain whether or not he would vote yes. Is it because of the merits of anything that has been presented, or is he buying into this narrative that the accusation is so serious that we have to put, we have to stop the presses and we have to press pause and we have to put everything on hold before we move forward. If it's the latter, if he knows something that we don't, then that's one thing. But if he's just buying into the narrative as has been publicly espoused by Ford and her compatriots and by Diane Feinstein and Chuck Schumer, that is indeed problematic. Unfortunately, there's literally nothing any of us can do about it because the guy is retiring from the Senate. And so it does put him in a position where he can do what he wants. It's just, it's odd, though, to consider why he would want to do this. And if indeed, as Hinderacker characterizes it, it's only in spite of President Trump and only in spite of the current state of the Republican Party. Listen, I'll say this as somebody who, as you know, as longtime listeners of the program know, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. Never have been. You know, I've I've had my ups and downs with him. Some days I like him better than others. And there there are there are days like today where you'll find me arguing very fervently in favor of what it what is that he wants to get done. In this case, confirming Brett Kavanaugh. Other days you'll find me arguing in fact, later on tonight, you'll find me arguing against him on the subject of tariffs. So, you know, I and I have been characterized both by others and by myself in twenty sixteen as a never Trumper. From that perspective, I don't understand Jeff Flake's position here. From that perspective, I don't understand what would motivate Jeff Flake to stand in the way of the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. It makes no sense, even from the perspective of somebody who was never Trump. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. We've been focused primarily on the situation with Brett Kavanaugh and his confirmation hearings and the allegation that's been brought to bear by Christine Ford, uh, facilitated largely by Senator Dianne Feinstein, which 
is an 11th hour attempt to derail what seems to otherwise be a clear path to confirmation. Let's talk to Dan in Hopkins. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Hey. I heard on uh, another radio show today <clears throat> that Feinstein held on to it because she was directed by Ford. Not She wasn't prepared to come forward yet. You know what's all calculated? She was in the women's women, Million Women March, and she is supporting Democrats. She's a, she's a despise, she despises our president. Mm-hmm. And so in the, from what I've read, I don't even think she can remember who is exactly even in the room. She doesn't even know if it's Kavanaugh or not. But she's putting him, you know, throwing this at him. It is truly extraordinary, particularly when you compare and contrast the, all of the details, all of the context of this allegation to the allegations against, in particular, Keith Ellison by his former girlfriend, Karen Monahan. Uh, we got a piece here from Alpha News that I want to share with you here shortly. But the, to, to your point, the, the political calculation is incredibly obvious like they're not even trying to hide it this is the most clumsily executed political ambush Potent- oh, i mean in, in they're pulling out in modern memory stops. yeah and you know what off flake the cumulative negative effect of flake i will say it betraying our country and betraying the founders ideas and all and 50 plus million or more americans just the whole all of them, I'll just say it, even whether they know it or not, the liberals need Kavanaugh because we all need justice and we need all the rule of law. Right. You don't need an activist court. Right. And the cumulative negative effect of him doing it far exceeds yeah. any snubbing he wants to do on the president. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I, I don't know how much I actually like Kavanaugh. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like, from a, from my libertarian perspective, I have yeah. issues with some of the positions he's taken, but, but I don't, again, taking all of that into account, taking my skepticism of Trump into account, taking my the nits I would pick with Kavanaugh into account, I still cannot conceive of why, if I was in Jeff Flake's position, I would do anything other than enthusiastically support this con- this confirmation. I, I don't I don't understand. By anyone for an interview? What's that? Is he is he giving anybody an interview? Flake and the conservative media. Flake. I don't know. We could, I mean we could go for the hail mary pass and see where we get him on the program. That'd be something. Have him on nine o'clock yeah. Twin Cities radio. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're not threatening. But yeah, right. He needs to be gently and politely pressed. Sure. On the devastation. I'm genuinely know, curious. I, I I just want to know the the honest answer to the question of why would you do this? Why would you well, lend credence to the Democrats' narrative on this? Well, yeah, put the request in and, and tell us what happens. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we can get done. Appreciate the call, Dan. So Alpha News reports Karen Monahan has accused Democrats of not believing her Me Too moment. And now she is sharing medical records that corroborate her side of the story. Monahan, the woman accusing Representative Keith Ellison of domestic violence, has been calling out Democrats for having a double standard on the Me Too movement. In a Twitter exchange earlier this week, Monahan said Democrats do not believe her story, adding that she has been smeared, threatened, isolated from her own party since coming forward. Now Monahan has released a medical record from 2017 that documents the physical and emotional abuse she claims to have suffered at the hands of Ellison. 
The medical report from one Jody K. Melbourne, MD, reads in part, she states, this being uh, Monaghan, she states that she was in a very stressful environment for years, emotional and physical abuse by a partner with whom she is now separated. She did not have any physical injuries that required a physical examination in the past. She identifies the individual she was involved with as Congressman Ellison, and she is worried about retribution if she identifies him publicly. That was the the contents of the medical report that she posted. Monahan shared a picture of the report on Twitter, calling on Democrats to take all abuse allegations serious. And they, they actually they embedded the tweet here, and it's a direct response to a tweet from Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein had tweeted out, "Quote: I hope that each and every one of us will immediately denounce the horrific treatment of Dr. Blasey Ford. That's the accuser of Brett Kavanaugh." That this brave woman is receiving death threats and has been forced to flee with her family is appalling and heartbreaking. This abuse must stop. We're better than this. And so in response to that tweet, Karen Monahan tweeted out this picture of her medical record and said, I do believe we are better than this. Please take all abuse allegations serious. People and families need a society who value all human dignity. Ouch. That is inconvenient. Continuing at Alpha News, the Twitter exchange began over a discussion about Christine Blasey Ford, the woman accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct during a high school party. Democrats have been quick to support Ford despite the allegations lacking substantial supporting information. However, skepticism still remains over Monaghan's claims. Monaghan says it is amazing the measures people have, have to take for their humanity to be validated. Well, I hate to be the one to break it to you, Ms. Monaghan. But it doesn't amaze me. It doesn't amaze me at all. It is perfectly consistent with what we've observed on this program time and time again from your leftist cohort, which is that they do not care about actual victims at all. They do not care about, about the people they claim are oppressed, whether you're talking about a, cl- a class or an individual. They only care about the political utility of the stories of said victims, real or imagined. And so, you know, this is something that, unfortunately, we have to get used to in the, the um, going forward in the public discourse for this, this double standard to exist. You know, I, I will say I understand why someone might be surprised by just the, the blatant hypocrisy that's been on display in these last few days particularly here in Minnesota, when you compare the Monaghan accusations to the Blasey Ford allegations. I mean, the, qualitatively, they are oil and water. They are night and day. They are polar opposites in terms of the quality of the accusations. And yet the reaction from the Democrats and from the left is precisely the opposite of what the merits of each allegation call for, which is pretty off-putting or ought to be pretty off-putting, which goes to... A larger point about the left, and particularly those who are publicly and proudly identifying themselves as socialists. These are not nice people. They're really not. And they very successfully sold themselves and managed to portray themselves in the public discourse as the nice guys who mean well. Well, there's a piece over at the Foundation for Economic Education that says to say socialists mean well gives them too much credit. And that's saying the least you can about it. In fact, we're dealing with a moral evil, which 
is dead set on getting in between individual human beings and their means of survival and enjoyment of their lives. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join the conversation 651-989-5855. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. And let's get right to your thoughts this evening. Let's talk to Ted in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Yeah, I'm really disappointed by um, the visibility of the Republican candidates. Uh, they're invisible. I I don't even know who's running against Amy Klobuchar, uh, Karen Hous- Carol Housley. The only thing I know about her is I see her skating around the nice ring constant commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the last time Keith Ellison rang for Congress, I didn't learn his opponent's name until I actually went to the voting booth to vote. <laughs> I never even heard the guy's name. Sure. And it's like the news media will not print their names. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I heard this guy that was going against Klobuchar. He was going to run a very aggressive campaign. Well, if it's so aggressive, why hasn't I even heard his name yet? And uh, it's really disappointing. The Star Tribune won't give him one. Like, war well, it's, you know. it's it's interesting because you know you you say that they won't print the the names of their Republican opponents, and you're specifically when it comes to Klobuchar, you're referring to uh, Jim Newberger, who's the yeah. Republican nominee. And you know, I've I've read articles. We've got articles here in the stack, actually. Uh, that do mention their names, but it's in the body of the articles, right? Like the the prominence that there's ways of packaging, even news reporting, journalistic presentation. There's ways of packaging it in such a way as to give prominence to one candidate over the other. And you know, there was on on my driveway this past Sunday, the the front page article of the Star Tribune was the poll of walls being up over Johnson. And that's not the first favorable. Now, I, I understand that the poll is what it is, but you can't tell me that if the numbers were flipped and Jeff Johnson was leading Tim Walls, that it would be front page news of the Star Tribune that Jeff Johnson is out ahead, right? Like that, that would be something that they would bury. And so there is that. There's definitely the media bias, but there's another part. There's a couple other aspects as well which is not the media's fault and is not the left's fault. Number one, these people don't have any money. If you, yeah. you, you look at the fundraising, I, I think I, I want to say, and take this with a huge grain of salt because I'm saying it from memory from one of these recent articles, I want to say that Housley and Tina Smith, I want to say that Tina Smith has outraised Housley by something like four to one in terms of uh, money. And, you know, and then you look at Walls and Johnson, you look at the fact that the Republican Governors Association has pulled their reservation for ad time in uh, October, I believe it was, or certainly in September. They, uh, October's still up for grabs, I guess. But there, there are all these, <laughs> you might characterize them as crimes of omission on the part of the broader Republican ecosphere where there just isn't the financial support for these candidates. 
uh, number one. That, uh, Johnson, you know, he lost against Mark Dayton. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen him doing anything different. He's just running the same type of campaign he ran against Dayton. Well, this Wallace seems like, you know, he's more center. I mean, he's not center by any means, but he's more palatable. Yeah. Wasn't. Well, and that's the other. That's the last thing I was going to point out is so on the. You've got the media bias, yes. You've got the fact that they're being outraised, correct, and that's and that falls to that falls both on the donors, but I can't blame them too hard because it's their money, and I'm not you know me making the argument that they should spend their money is kind of weak tea. It also falls on the candidates to your final point, and you know I, I'm a big believer that the a campaign rises and falls on the with the candidate. The candidate is the one who's ultimately responsible. And so to your point, there should be much more interesting things happening, much more interesting things being said, much more aggressive tactics being employed to try to earn that fundraising and earn that media and get out in front of people and get their their name recognition. They 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 Republicans in this state seem to campaign as if this was a red state or even a purple state. Like they figured they can just go out there and make nice and be presentable and straighten their ties and wave and kiss babies. And that that's somehow going to get them elected. This is a blue state in order to John McCain tried that and that didn't work. Right. Yeah. In, in order to succeed in Minnesota as a Republican, you have to both undermine the viability of your democratic opponent and also charge up your supporters and grow your base of support so as to get greater turnout come November. And th- there seems to be, and maybe, you know, I'm I'm not stating anything that I think is particularly profound in saying that, but sometimes it seems as though the people who are advising these candidates aren't really coming at it from that angle, that they're coming at it from more of the angle of, of safety, paint by numbers, Here's what the what the focus tests say you should do and say you should say and what have you. Don't get me started. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that Amy Klobuchar, her two biggest weaknesses, uh, her just being absent on national defense, and uh, she wouldn't vote for a George Bush's budgets because she was worried about the national debt. Well, when Obama became president, yeah. she was no longer worried about the national debt. Right. And. Uh, on national defense, she's been absent. and I've never heard her say one single word about national defense. Well, see, that's the thing is Klobuchar. Klobuchar is do is is utilizing the exact same type of campaign strategy as our statewide Republican candidates are. The difference is she's in a blue state, right? Like she, yeah. she's a Democrat running in a state that's favorable to her, so she, she never doesn't has to answer difficult questions. Right? She, she never had right. Hartman. And he throws her softballs all day long. Exactly. He will never ask her a difficult question because if he does, she'll never go back on his show again. Yeah, she has no, there's no reason for her to take risks. It's like I've compared it to a poker game where, you know, you're, you're playing against somebody who has much more chips than you do. If you're playing against somebody who has more money, they are not going to be put in a position where they have to take risks, whereas you are. And that's the it's situation like that. You know, like Hillary Clinton did back in New York when she ran for Senate. She just ran based on the commercial. She never actually did a uh, tough interview. Right. Exactly. I appreciate the call, Ted. Yeah, that's the thing is that the Republicans, in order to get traction in a state where the the voting behaviors are upside down in terms of being favorable to Republicans, they have to be willing to take more risks. And specifically, the risk 
that I would prescribe, that I would at least suggest and attempt if I were in a position to attempt it, the risk that I would take is actually making some moral arguments. They just have to stop being boring. Stop being boring. There's no value proposition in voting Republican in Minnesota. Karen Housley is Amy Klobuchar light. She talks about how she's worked for nursing homes and done all this work in nursing homes, but Amy Klobuchar has done the exact same thing in the Senate. There's there's no value. I mean, she's running against Karen Housley's running against Tina Smith, but the point remains: they're just running on Democratic positions and don't and are so ineffective and so weak that they don't do anything or can't get anything accomplished that they actually run on. Yeah, I mean, they're trying. They're trying to win votes by being liked by being likable and being nice people who people identify with you know the the commercial um that that was reference of karen housley um you know she brings her her husband phil housley who's uh a well-known hockey player on and it's oh look at me you know me you know my husband we're nice people vote for me and like there's definitely a utility in that it's it's not a bad ad but that's that's not the type of approach you take if you're trying to shake things up in a state that's stacked against you. If you want to, sh- you need to shake things up. You need to be taking a stance that people are going to be forced to react to, and that the papers are going to be forced to write about. Now you know they're not going to write favorably, but that's that's the state you live in, right? Like you, if you're going to run statewide as a Republican in Minnesota, you have to resolve at the outset. To, to the to the inevitability that you're going to be fighting an uphill battle, that you're going to be hated, that you're going to be vilified, but that that's the situation you have to navigate and be willing to navigate and assume the risks that come along with that in order to, to seek what is otherwise not going to happen, which is political victory. Yeah, I called it as soon as Jeff Johnson announced his candidacy. The Democrats are going to sweep state li- statewide elections in Minnesota because... Just on the fact alone that Republicans are boring. <laughs> Stop being boring. Well, okay. And so here specifically is my suggestion for how to go about not being boring as a Republican in the state of Minnesota. Start making moral condemnations and moral prescriptions. The left does this all day long. All we ever hear from the Democrats is about what's right and what's wrong and how they're on the side of good and their opponents are on the side of bad. You never hear them calling Republicans or conservatives or anybody who is right of Che Guevara. You never hear them giving any sort of benefit of any sort of doubt or any sort of credence or saying, oh, that's he's a nice guy, but respectable people can disagree. You know, reasonable people can disagree. That is not the type of rhetoric that is employed by the left. In spite of their political advantage that they have in this state, they still fight tooth and nail. They still get into the arena like rabid dogs and fight as though their lives were on the line and condemn Republicans and conservatives as a moral evil. And Republicans need to be willing to do the same. Now, here's the difference, though, the critical difference between Republicans doing that and Democrats doing that. Or, or to be more specific, conservatives doing that versus the left. Conservatives are actually correct. Conservatives actually do have the moral high ground. When, it, when a conservative says, I am standing upon what is morally righteous, and I am working to affirm what is good and proper and life-affirming, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to affirm dignity and respect for the individual and the requirements of human life, 
and to fight for what's good and righteous. And the and my opponent is against all of that. My opponent is for subjugation and various degrees of slavery and for holding people down and judging people as members of a group rather than as individuals and of depriving people of dignity and choice and possibility and meaning. That is, those are all true statements. And so you have the advantage of actually being on the side of right. And so this, the, this situation that we currently find ourselves in, where Republicans are reluctant to argue on moral terms and are very fond of these utilitarian arguments of, well, we should cut taxes because uh, supply side and blah, blah, blah. Like nobody cares. You've put people to sleep with that. The, the utilitarian argument for cutting taxes is not going to hold a candle to the moral argument for giving people handouts. You have to counter a moral argument with a moral argument. You have to undermine the claim to moral high ground that the Democrats and the left currently have and replace it with the actual righteous indignation that properly belongs on the conservative side. We'll get into that in more detail and take your call. 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, taking your calls at 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Pat in Shoreview. Welcome to the program. Well, yeah, I guess I think the thing that I don't see the Republicans do in the state that I think they should um, is talk about immigration. I mean, I would, the Democrats have voted in the Senate for open borders for Pete's sake. Um, when you, and I would just simply say that, um, okay, so the middle class has shrunk in size and the wages have remained uh, stagnant for like 30 years. Why has that happened? Well, probably number one is automation. Probably number two is trade. But probably number three is is immigration. Um, we've got, as far as, like, foreign-born people in this country, it's, like, at the highest level it's, it, it's been or it's at a historical high um, or similar to a historical high. Like, one in seven people in this country right now are foreign-born. If you talk about supply and demand of labor, well, I mean, there you go. We've got, uh, you know, finally Trump has tracked, crack down on uh, immigration to illegal immigration to a certain extent and uh, wages are starting to go up just slightly now in a pretty much of a booming economy that's the first thing i would go after so i would say the democrats want open borders do you really want open borders um second thing i would say is, is that yeah he did do the tax cuts but we're now economically competitive with the rest of the world as far as the corporate tax rate it's at 15 percent it's brought a lot of money back into the country, and it looks like it's going to continue. Corporations are going to continue to invest in this country because they know that their tax rate is going to be competitive with the rest of the world. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, the other thing that, that Trump has done that I think has been good for the economy is really good for the economy is is that he's um, um the, he's he's opened up the oil industry. He's sure. let people sure. you know drill for oil build the pipelines, all that sort of thing. Um, we're now the largest producer of oil in the world. Now, yeah, you could say, well, I mean, I think that Obama 
tightened that or didn't what restricted the growth of the oil industry because it was you know about fossil fuels and global warming. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, right. You know, I mean, making making the fantastic there. argument that in order to save the earth, we should starve ourselves, which is an odd play, but apparently goes over well with some folks. I appreciate your thoughts and appreciate your call, Pat. Yeah, you know, I find myself at odds with the particulars of Pat's views on on immigration in particular, but I'll grant him this. At the very least, that ain't boring, right? Like, at the very least, that's interesting, that's provocative, that's going to garner a response, and that's the type of... Now, in defense of Jeff Johnson, I will say he has been making those arguments. I... For whatever reason, it's not catching fire. Well, it's not catching fire because he's making that argument to people who are already going to vote for him. Sure. Like, what Pat is saying that Republicans should be uh, forwarding as their position, they've already been doing. And as I've said before uh, in past discussions on this topic, is that Republicans need to start arguing and talking about the same points that Demo- that Democrats are arguing about now, but do them better right. than Democrats. Like right. to your point, yes, they need to start taking the moral high ground on issues such as taxation and right. and whatnot. But they also need to talk about legalizing marijuana and how yeah. we can we can use that to fund the schools. We can use that to end the drug war. We can use that to end racial profiling by police. Mm-hmm. Um, we can uh, reform entitlements and stop them from uh, like robbing young people of their future like social right. security is right yeah i mean that that's just it is i i i would never prescribe if somebody was coming to me and asking for my, my attempt at professional campaign advice which you know i'm not a professional campaigner or a professional campaign consultant but if somebody was going to ask me for that i would not recommend that they cut and paste the things i say on this show into their campaign for statewide office in Minnesota. You know, the, the the way in which I craft moral arguments in the context of conservative talk radio is for the audience of conservative talk radio. To Brad's point, when your objective is to appeal in a blue state to independent and undecided voters, you don't you don't change your principles, you don't soften your message, you don't pull your punches, but you're strategic. You go after the issues where you ha- where you have opportunities to make an impact, and you go after them from a perspective whereby you're you're actually demonstrating first of all how the Democrats because the the disadvantage of having been in power and the disadvantage of of being the uh, whatever the opposite of an underdog is being the upper dog in this scenario. The disadvantage of that is that you actually have to account for what you haven't done. I mean, that's always the problem with with incumbents is they've made promises in the past as to what they're going to bring to bear. For instance, uh, it, it, to benefit the black community or to benefit uh, the the disadvantage in education or those who are receiving entitlements or whatever the case may be. And so you have an opportunity there to make the case that you to those constituents your life has not actually gotten better, despite the fact that cycle after cycle after cycle, you've been told by these people who have, have, have won your vote that if you keep voting for them, your life is going to significantly improve and, and the clouds are going to part and opportunity is going to beam down from the sky. And it hasn't occurred. And here's why it hasn't occurred. Here's, here's an alternative 
that that is bold and provocative and presents you with a different path to success and to affluence and to a a fulfillment in your life that you can take ownership of that you can be proud of that you can retain dignity from and that is something that the other side can not offer you there are ways to craft these arguments in a way that they would be appealing to that independent voter that that purple voter out there in minnesota 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 fm twin cities Waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kind of odd. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. We've been talking about the difficulty that Republicans face in trying to win statewide here in Minnesota. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Olman takes those calls and produces the show. We got Jeff from Maplewood on the line. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Good show tonight. Thanks. Uh, I wanted to point out, if you look back at uh, last, uh, I believe it was the Star Tribune, NPR, Minnesota poll. If you look at the crosstabs, and there's a link to the crosstabs for the listeners who actually want to go and look at this, Look at the favorable rate, favorability ratings uh, amongst the candidates. I mean, just compare Jim Newberger and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, if you look at the number of people who don't know who Amy Klobuchar is, you find that's very, very low. That's the power of incumbency. Right. Right. Look at the number of people who don't know who Jim Newberger is. It was like 76 or 79 percent. Yeah, unsurprising. The, no- the number one thing that Republicans face, especially if they're challengers, is that people don't know who our candidates are. And that's mm-hmm. incumbent upon the campaigns themselves to fix. Correct. Uh, with Jeff Johnson, yes, you know, he's the GOP-endorsed candidate for governor. This is the second go-around. This is his third statewide race. He has had numerous election cycles to build his name recognition up, mm-hmm. and he's a lot closer than Tim Walls. Tim Walls, you know, 10, 12 years as a member of Congress, He's built up a good name identification. Before we can start picking apart arguments and making contrasts and differences, we need to make sure that our candidate, that the general populace who doesn't pay attention to politics knows who our candidates are and what they stand for and use that to build the foundation for the intellectual argument. So how do we go about doing that? Well, the old school way of doing that was always, and I was for 20, 30 years ago, we used to have volunteers in every precinct who would go door-to-door with literature, going to every door, and what that would do is at least get name identification out to the average voters all across the state. For the last 10 years, we've gotten away from that, and we really need to go back to that. And if you can, and especially early on, it's going to be a little too late for this election cycle, yeah. but for 2020. You know, if statewide candidates will start, any candidate really, will start blitzing the neighborhood with biography pieces in the spring and early summer and then start building up on uh, comparison contrast between them and the opponent, we're going to find a lot more traction. But until we get back to doing the basics, we're going to continue to spin our wheels. It's an interesting idea. I, I wonder, because, you know, being 
being relatively young to party politics, I don't recall an era where that was actually how it was handled with statewide candidates. Where it was, I, I first started in 1986 with okay. volunteering for campaigns, and that's how it was done in the uh, late 80s when I got involved and into the early to mid 90s. I think it was probably more 98 we started kind of getting away from that more into mail, mm-hmm. and then since about 2004 2006 we started doing more online. Mm-hmm. Really, you need to do a a bunch of a, a, you're going to do a fair amount of all of that. Everything is a tool. And yet we've gotten completely away from the very baseline tool that would even get us to the starting. So it occurs to me, and, you know, I'm just kind of reacting to this as I'm hearing it, but it occurs to me that the fatal flaw in that strategy is that it requires those grassroots volunteers on the ground to be willing and able and numerous enough in order to get the job done. And if you're going to have that, then it, it, it seems to me that you need to ensure that your campaigns and your candidacies are emerging from the grassroots or at least earning strong support amongst the grassroots. And it seems in recent years that there's been this tension and this friction between kind of the donor class and what might be referred to as the establishment and the, the, the folks who come out to caucus and become delegates that there's this kind of, you know, it might be overstating it to call it a civil war, but certainly a tension between those two forces. And I don't see how, how that resolves into the kind of large-scale statewide volunteer operation that you're talking about. I'm wondering if you might have any insights into how it used to work. Well, uh, there's always been that tension, and, I, and I'll call it the donor class versus the activist base. Sure. Not so much the establishment, but sure. the activist sure. base. Sure, That's because probably more accurate. There, there's always been a distrust between the two. The, do, the donors will come out and say, hey, we got all the money, but... Uh, we don't trust in how it's going to be spent. And right. the activists are saying, we, we've got the work and we can get the stuff to the door and we can do all the stuff that we need to do to win, but the donor class doesn't understand what we need. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a tension that's been there ever since I've been involved in politics, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think the, the first thing really starts off with the candidate selection when a candidate decides that they're going to run. And we'll, I'll just make the uh, supposition, say uh, Karen Housley loses to Tina Smith, and then we've got the election up in two years for that seat. Right. You know, whether it's Housley or whether it's another candidate, they've got to actually create a campaign plan early on, when they first start running, and say, this is what we need, this is how much money we need to raise, this is how many volunteers. And instead of just going out and, and trying to get people for an endorsement, you also need to get them active in the volunteer uh, in the volunteer base. Mm-hmm. You know, the that's the first thing. I mean, for literature, printing literature is cheap. You know, it really is. And even if you're starting off, you know, you you don't need a million dollars worth of campaign literature out there that's going to take you six months to get through. I mean, you can right. print as you go. Mm-hmm. So there are ways of being able to do that early on. And then again, everything builds on it. You know, once you actually show some work at that grassroots level, then you're going to get more smaller dollar donors coming in. Then you're going to get more long time locations coming in. And then some of the bigger dollar donors are going to say, hey, we actually have a. Yeah, there's something here. Right. Yeah, I'm not throwing good money after bad. Yeah, and we're not planning properly and we're not building that firm foundation. And Uh, we need to start thinking about winning in 2020 mm-hmm. really by january of 2019 
Uh, Fair enough. I I can't uh, I can't find much to uh, nitpick with your analysis, Jeff. I appreciate you calling in to share it with us on the program. Now, when it comes to finding ways to motivate that potential base of volunteers who will go out there and hit the ground in neighborhoods and in the precincts and hand out the literature and raise that name ID of the various statewide candidates, I maintain that even amongst our own, you still have to be something better than boring, to put it as Brad does. You, you can't be boring. And so, you know, what I'm interested in is is moral arguments because moral arguments are particularly motivating. You know, people get really activated. You know, everybody wants to be a hero, right? Everybody wants to be a hero. Everybody wants to be on the side of right. Everybody fantasizes from the time they're a child about defeating some sort of evil. And, you know, it's just part of our the human condition, our human nature. And it's extraordinarily motivating when you can articulate that something is wrong and you are acting to fix it or to replace it with something that will work, something that is better to correct an evil, that, that, that's how you're going to get people to want to donate their time to go door to door and hand out that cheap literature, uh, as has been suggested. And so, you know, one of the ways I feel as though we need to do this is by ch- changing our approach to how we talk about socialists and socialism. And, you know, recognizing that we don't always need to use those terms, you know, when we talk about the left, there's a a piece over at the Foundation for Economic Education where they say that to say socialists mean well gives them too much credit. And the basic idea here is that when we when we talk about the left as though they're just nice people who mean well and have bad ideas, then we're, we're granting them the benefit of benevolence when in point of fact their prescribed means are anything but and this is written by grant babcock over there at fee and he goes into you know a little bit into the weeds and defining what socialism is but you know cutting to the chase he writes socialists constantly point to their desired ends as evidence of their virtue but as jason brennan put it in why not capitalism socialism is not love or kindness, or generosity, or oceans of delicious lemonade. Socialism is not equality or community. It's just a way of distributing the control rights over objects. Socialism is not ultimately an end, but a means. And as a means, socialism is evil. That's because at heart, democratic control is still political control, and politics makes us worse. One of the ways it makes us worse is by fostering the attitude that we're entitled to boss others around, even if we're only one of many engaged in the bossing. It's an ugly, dehumanizing impulse that fails to respect the dignity and sovereignty of our fellows. To exercise or the exercise of political power is uniquely bad in this respect. When my boss at work gives me an instruction in the course of my employment, he's not presuming to be my moral superior. Rather, he's expecting me to hold up my half of a bargain. By contrast, people who wield political power over me are thereby asserting something about my status as a person that it's lower than theirs. In a wide-ranging speech delivered at Nelbo Saloon in New York City on March 15th of 1837, nestled between a discussion of the annexation of Texas and the spoils system of bureaucratic appointments, Senator Daniel Webster spoke about executive overreach 
and whether such overreach could be defended on the grounds that people claiming political power had good intentions. Webster thought not, he wrote, or he said, good motives may always be assumed, as bad motives may always be imputed. Good intentions will always be pleaded for every assumption of power, but they cannot justify it, even if we were sure that they existed. It is hardly too strong to say that the Constitution was made to guard the people against the dangers of good intention, real or pretended. Human beings, we may well be assured, will generally exercise power when they get it, and they will exercise it most undoubtedly in popular governments under pretenses of public safety or high public interest. It may be very possible that good intentions do really sometimes exist when constitutional restraints are disregarded. Uh, the notion of the public interest is apt to be quite closely connected with their own exercise of authority. They may not indeed always understand their own motives. The love of power may sink too deep in their own hearts, even for their own scrutiny, and may pass with themselves for mere patriotism and benevolence. You know, that's the type of language you don't hear uh, in 2018 versus 1837. But the point being, good intentions do not make your actions good. Good intentions do not make your prescribed means good. And indeed, the, I, I frankly don't care what your intentions are when what you're prescribing is a violation of my rights and is a prima facie moral evil. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com. So surprise, surprise, turns out the Obama administration, you know, those stewards, and the, the, the left and the Democrats look back upon the Obama years as though it was just this, this gilded land of hope and promise and nothing but goodness and the complete polar opposite of Donald Trump. You know, everything they hate about Donald Trump, you know, in particular, in, in this instance, his opposition to the press, his hostility towards the media, his confrontational antagonism towards journalists, towards the press corps. You know, that, it's, it's horrible to contemplate in their eyes. And when they look back upon Obama, oh, it was so much nicer then. It was so much more pleasant. Well, as it turns out, a newly released Eric Holder memo indicates that the feds can use FISA to spy on journalists. That's the headline over at Reason.com. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 to shoehorn in a comment before the end of the program. Continuing at Reason, the federal government can use the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to spy on journalists. So said a pair of 2015 Justice Department memos, including one from then-Attorney General Eric Holder. FISA is controversial in itself. The act is supposed to be used to justify surveillance on foreign targets. But as reason Scott Shackelford has explained, intelligence agencies often use it to secretly spy on American citizens, sometimes without a warrant. According to the newly released documents, obtaining permission to surveil members of the media is not easy, but it is possible. 
In one memo dated March 19th, Holder says FISA applications against journalists must be approved by the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General prior to being brought before a FISA court. In the other memo, dated January 8th, the Deputy Attorney General writes that the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General shall retain discretion to refer such FISA applications to the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division for dis- disposition. In other words, this is two or three people who are making these decisions as to whether or not the First Amendment can basically be violated, because that's what this is. This is prima facie violation of the freedom of the press and the Fourth Amendment, of course, as well. The idea that you're going to be surveilled arbitrarily without your knowledge due to the the warrant issued by a secret court and secret proceedings and never even be aware of it. Both memos, continuing at reason, were obtained in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit brought against multiple federal agencies by a pair of press freedom groups, the Freedom of the Press Foundation and the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. The lawsuit originally sought answers regarding the Trump administration's war on leaks. So here's the great irony here. The only reason we know about these memos from the Obama administration, authored by Attorney General Eric Holder, is because a couple of liberal press groups put forth a FISA application or a FISA lawsuit and got this information released. Oops. Unintended consequences. Berkeley Law Professor Jim Dempsey, a former member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, claims that the information contained in the memos is a recognition that monitoring journalists poses special concerns and requires higher approval. Dempsey tells The Intercept he sees the rules as a positive and sometimes that the media should welcome. Patrick Eddington, a policy analyst in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute, disagrees. If the government wants to conduct surveillance of any American for alleged criminal conduct, they should have to obtain a probable cause-based warrant from a federal judge exactly as the Fourth Amendment requires. Eddington tells Reason. These guidelines, he says, degrade that Fourth Amendment standard to the point of making it meaningless. And that is obviously true, isn't it? Like, what? I, I failed to understand the whole concept of FISA. The whole concept that there are circumstances under which the government ought to be able to act in what would otherwise be unconstitutional means secretly without the knowledge of the objects of their intrusion, that the government ought to be able to do that under any circumstances is pretty dubious. But in particular, when you're talking about American citizens and when you're talking about the press, now, this is a little bit of a nit that I'll pick. This notion that the press has some sort of special protection above and beyond the rest of us is something that that should not be stressed to the degree that it is because all the press is, it's, it's just an occupation. That's all it is. There's nothing special about being the press that gives you more Fourth Amendment rights than anybody else. However, it is particularly troublesome to think that people who are in, engaged in the pursuit ostensibly of speaking truth to power and reporting the truth uh, as they see it to the rest of us could potentially come under scrutiny of government surveillance of government without their knowledge or ours under the FISA Act and all of this took place under Barack Obama not Donald Trump. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.